Now, you might recall last week I began a sermon, Romans 9, 14 through 18, on is God's sovereign election fair? And as the providence of God would have it, we ran out of time. And so the last point of that sermon, I said I would develop into a full sermon the next week because I didn't want to do a two-hour message that day. You know, during the Puritan days, they would have an hourglass in the pulpit. And the preacher had to be done within two turns or one turn or two times of the hourglass. So they would go, it would go down once, that was an hour, and they could flip it over and have another hour. But they also had sticks with feathers on there that would tickle the people falling asleep to wake up. And if you were in a really sleepy church, they would have pokers on the end of those sticks and poke people that were falling asleep. However, I generally don't go two hours on a sermon. And I think it's an important topic here that we need to have time to digest it in its own sermon. So there's a part two to is God's sovereign election fair. To set the context, Romans 9 through 11 is Paul teaching us about Israel and God's sovereignty over his plan for Israel, his election of certain people out of Israel, and his eventual salvation of all Israel when Christ returns. So Paul opened that up in chapter 9. He has been talking about it. The question really is, what happened to Israel? God, if you keep your promises, what happened to Israel? And Paul says, God's still faithful. God's kept his promises. It's just right now, in Paul's day and our day, not all of Israel is elected for salvation. Not all of the people who descended from Abraham are elected to salvation. Some are elected because of God's mercy, and some are rejected because of God's justice. And so in 9.13, he really has now drilled down to this subject of God's sovereign election, and you'll see an objection starting there in verse 14. So let's begin reading here in 13, verse 13, chapter 9 of Romans. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, in order to demonstrate my power in you, and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. This must be one of the so-called hardest texts of the New Testament. Hard to sometimes understand, harder sometimes to accept. We often have no problem accepting and believing that God is a God of mercy, and he's sovereign, and he can decide upon whom he puts his mercy. But this idea of God's hardening, that's a, another story completely to hear that God hardens whom he chooses to harden. I've got a couple of books on the hard sayings of Jesus, the hard sayings of the Bible, and this has a lot of space in those books on trying to deal with what Paul is saying here. In fact, I read to you last week that this paragraph has been twisted, has been cut out, and some people will even say someone else wrote it and not Paul because it is difficult to accept. So why does Paul tell us this, especially about Pharaoh's hardening? I think many people would be happy if he just stopped right at the mercy part and left out verses 17 and 18. 
And so why does he tell us that? Or for that matter, why should I preach to you this? Because it's not going to be a warm and fuzzy sermon to preach on the hardening of people's heart by God. Why preach hard texts? I mean, some preachers might read this, emphasize the mercy, and then just move on right through to the next section. So why preach on it? Why write about it, Paul? Because God wants us to hear hard teaching, hard preaching. He wants us to know the truth, even though it is sometimes hard for us to accept. Sometimes it does feel hard for us to hear. Sometimes we resist it. He doesn't just want to teach on people going to heaven, but also those who are going to hell. There's the positive. There's the, I want to go to heaven and thank you, Lord, for saving me. And there's also the negative side of it, which is those who aren't going to heaven are going to hell. And both glorify God, but that motivates us to not only live holy lives, to also tell people about salvation in Christ. God doesn't just want us to learn about the part where he sovereignly chooses to have mercy on some, but also that God sovereignly chooses to reject others and harden them. Both glorify God. Both elevate his name. Both are reasons to praise him. God wants us to hear hard teaching and preaching like this sometimes, so we will not be presumptuous about the gospel, so that we will not pat ourselves on the back and think that somehow we saved ourselves. Somehow we did something. Somehow we twisted God's arm to save us. Somehow we're better than our neighbors who are not saved. No, God wants us to hear hard teaching and preaching, so we'll be humble. He wants us to hear messages like this one today, so we'll have soft hearts, not hard hearts. Which reminded me of something MacArthur, John MacArthur often said to the seminary students. It's probably in one of his books, but more recently, I found the quote, an expanded section here that I pulled. MacArthur says to the TMS students, hard preaching produces soft people. Soft preaching produces hard people. It's that simple. When I say hard people, I mean the truth. So he's saying sometimes the truth is hard to accept and we have to preach the truth and it's going to sound hard to people, but it's the truth. He said, and it's the goal of our instruction. Paul said, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. If a church has deep, sound doctrine, what you'll see in the church is love. If a church has superficial, shallow doctrine, you'll see selfishness, division, indifference, because love is the product of instruction. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. He says a mature church, a mature Christian environment is always going to be known for its love. That's the goal. And that only happens when they have deep down understanding of the full counsel of God so that all their convictions are held with grace and love and the very same way God holds those convictions. We want to believe what God believes. We want to live as God tells us to live. And sometimes that means hearing hard sermons, and sometimes that means hearing sermons that make us rejoice and just sing out. And other times it makes us look at our own hearts. It makes us consider our own sin. It makes us consider how God has saved us and why he saved us and who we were before he saved us. So all that to say that if you're here for the first time, we do go verse by verse. We do look at the text, even if it's a harder text than some of the others, and we consider what God wants us to hear from this text. So today we're looking just at 9, 17, and 18 about God's hardening. Just like he chooses to have mercy on some, he chooses to harden others. Now, this paragraph, as I told you, is about an objection. Paul has brought up election. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. 
So the first objection, and it's still a modern day objection. It was in Paul's day. It was today as well. You've probably seen many preachers and teachers and books written on this. That's not fair. This is the objection Paul is answering. That's not fair. You can't choose some people and leave others, God. That is not fair. Or some will go so far as to say, that's not fair because it should be based on something we do. You should choose people based on what they're going to do. God, you should look forward in time, learn something new about somebody choosing to believe, and then go back in time and then somehow choose that person. Which kind of gets ridiculous when we think about God's nature and that he knows all things at all times and that God decrees everything that comes to pass. But this is the objection Paul is answering. So the, the objection sounds like this in his day. What shall we say then? What do we say about all this stuff he's already taught here in Romans 9? When he gets to verse 14, what shall we say about it? And the most common thing people might say about it that's an objection is, there any unrighteousness with God? Is God unfair? Because if you're unfair, you're not just. And if you're not just, you're unrighteous. So this is a serious matter to say that God has been unfair in choosing some over others. That is calling him unrighteous. That's calling God sinful. We don't often think of it that way, but we really are. If we insist upon it, if we insist upon it being unfair, we're calling God sinful. That's one thing to just say, I don't know a lot about election. I've always been taught something different. I'd like to learn what the Bible says. I have questions. It's hard for me to accept that doctrine. And then you learn about it and you began to, to accept it and you began to realize this is God's truth. But it's another thing to call God unrighteous, to call God unfair. So Paul begins to answer this. That was the, the second major point of this text that I gave you last week. The denial of any unrighteousness in God. And his flat denial is may it never be. It's not possible. This is the strongest way Paul could say this in the Greek that the New Testament was written in. May it never, ever, ever, ever be. It's not even possible that God could be unrighteous. Put that out of your head. Don't think about it. He's saying we need to realize that God is righteous, not unrighteous. God is not unfair at all. So he begins to then explain to us what we ought to think about this. He answers the question here, not just by saying, may it never be, but also by bringing forth scriptural verses from the Old Testament to prove his case. So first of all, we looked at the answer because mercy is a perfection of God and brings him glory. That was verse 15 and 16. Mercy is a perfection. It's an attribute of God. It's who he is. And that brings him glory. That's what he meant when he says, for he says to Moses, this is God speaking to Moses about himself. This is when Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, you can't handle my glory, but you get in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and then you will see the backside of me. That's all you can see. And then Moses' face glowed for days. It had a shine to it because of God's glory. And God said something about himself. He said something about his great name. He said something in that statement in Exodus 33 about himself. That he is righteous, that he is good, that he is gracious, that he is merciful, that he has loving kindness. And he will choose who he shows that mercy to. God will choose. He's always merciful. He's always righteous. He's always just. But he will choose who gets to experience that, 
who he will demonstrate that on, whom he will show that to. He's a God of complete sovereignty and freedom. Before we talk about man's freedom, which is coming up, by the way, in chapter 10, before we talk about that, though, we need to talk about God's freedom, God's sovereign freedom. Because God's not like us, and we don't get to compare God to our standards of what we think is fair. Because that changes every day, doesn't it? That changes every day on this earth. To the things today that people say are fair and right, the government will decide, or some group will decide, or some liberal Christian church will decide it's not fair or it is fair, and it'll go back and forth throughout history sometimes. We don't take God and put him in our box. We don't take God and put him up on the, the dock and then bring our lawyers against him. That's never going to work out the way we want it to. God's not unjust to show mercy to some and let others pass. We're talking about who God is. If you read the passage, I, I went there last week in Exodus 33, 19. It's talking about God's name. It's talking about his glory. And then here's this quote about who God is. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. It's all tied together. So when we're talking about this, we're talking about the very nature of God, who he is. So Paul concludes from that in verse 16. So then, in other words, it, so then it, God's mercy does not depend on the one who wills. It's not about your desire. It's not about how much you want something. It's not about choice. Ultimately, it's not about human choice. It's about God. It doesn't depend on the one who runs. It doesn't matter how hard you try to be good. It doesn't matter how hard you try to obey the law. You try to obey the Bible. No, it depends on God who has mercy. In other words, salvation is all of God. When people ask you, why are you saved? Yes, you want to get to the gospel. You want to get to faith and repentance. But your main answer should be because of God. Because of God's grace. Because of God's grace alone. Sola gratia. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Now we move on to this couple of verses we have not looked at yet. The second part of Paul's answer, it's a two-pronged answer. The first part dealt with God's mercy. The second one is because God's justice is one of his perfections and it brings him glory. Because justice, why, why, why should we not consider God righteous? No, no, Paul says, we should never do that. We should make sure we understand he's righteous because justice is a perfection of God and it brings him glory. That's what 17 and 18 is all about. We can't just jump to, oh, what is this hardening about? That's not what Paul brought it up for. He didn't bring it up necessarily to teach us on hardening. That's all over scripture. We could go anywhere and really look at that and we will today. He brought it up to teach us about God and who God is and how God can't be unfair. Because this is his justice being displayed. Paul now mentions the opposite of mercy. You know what the opposite of mercy is? Justice. Justice. God has the sovereign freedom to not only choose to save some for his glory and his name, but he also has the freedom to pass over others, to reject others, to display the power and glory of his great name. You know, some say, well, his, his glory and name, that's not mentioned in the first part of this passage on the mercy. But we go back to Exodus and we find it's right there in the same verse. But I think Paul especially wanted to choose a verse here in the Old Testament that mentioned God's power, his glory, and his name. Just so there wasn't any confusion. God's 
attribute of justice, which is the same as his attribute of righteousness. Justice is just another way of saying righteousness. Here's what that means. It means that God always acts in accordance with what is right. And that he himself is the final standard of what is right. So if you want to know what's fair and what's right, you just look at what God does. We don't get to define that. God's word defines that for us. This is an attribute of God that's mentioned over and over in Scripture. We want to understand righteousness. We learn about God and who he is in Scripture. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's bringing forth a verse from the Old Testament that teaches us about God's righteousness, his justice. God is not unjust because he's the standard of what is right. God can't be unjust. God cannot be charged with injustice, even when he uses those who oppose him to fulfill his sovereign will. Even when he uses those who run off into their sin to ultimately give him glory. That's what we would expect from a holy God. That's what we would expect from a God of glory. That nothing is beyond him. That nothing has escaped his plan. That these things over here aren't happening in a corner and God doesn't know about them. Everything is made to glorify God. Everyone is made to glorify God. And we'll either glorify him in our salvation or glorify him in our eternal punishment. Well, here again, Paul brings out this passage from the scriptures, from the book of Exodus, again, in this case. And he says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, now this is from Exodus 9, 16, and he's quoting it. And notice, just, just stop and notice for a second. The scripture says to Pharaoh, Now, God's the one speaking to Moses when he states this. God is speaking to Moses about Pharaoh and about what is happening. But it says here in the New Testament, the scripture says to Pharaoh. In other words, the scripture is God's words. The scripture is the word of God. Paul says the scripture says to Pharaoh, which is the same thing as saying that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. So here's the quote, and we'll just take it. In chunks here. For this very purpose, I raised you up. So God says about Pharaoh, Moses, you go and tell him, for this very purpose, I raised you up. What does that mean? Well, the word raised up means bringing someone forward onto the stage of events of history. It's not just that God created Pharaoh. God created everyone. No, it's not as simple as that. It's that He raised up Pharaoh at the right time with all the right elements that Pharaoh needed to be powerful, to be mighty in Egypt. Charles Hodge, the old commentator, brings out the meaning of this Greek word raised up here for this purpose. He he translates it with a little more here. He says, for this purpose have I raised you up and placed you where you are instead of cutting you off at once. And have so long endured your obstinacy and wickedness. Have you ever thought about why God doesn't just wipe out the human race? That we're so sinful. Why did he even let Adam live after the garden? Or today, some people are so wicked. Why doesn't he just take them out? And Romans has already taught us in Romans 2. That God is a God of mercy. And that he's patient. God gives time. And Acts, Paul is preaching to the Greeks. And he says, you know, there's a time that God has given you. He hasn't wiped out your nation yet. There's a time that he's given you. And a sense he's overlooked your sins, not ultimately for eternal judgment, 
But he hasn't wiped out your people because he wants you to come to repentance. So God caused Pharaoh to appear on the stage of history for a definite reason. This very purpose, God's purpose. Pharaoh would not have said that God was making him more powerful or sinful. Pharaoh wouldn't have thought that. He wouldn't have said, oh, this must be the God of Israel who's making me powerful. This must be the God Yahweh who's doing this. No, Pharaoh thought it was all him. Pharaoh thought it was him. He thought of himself as a God. The Pharaohs thought of themselves as a God that deserved worship in Egypt. Pharaoh would not have complained, God, this is not fair. I mean, you're giving me all these chariots. You're giving me all this gold. You're giving me all these people to rule. He wouldn't have complained. He wouldn't have said that's unfair. But yet in the big scheme of things, God indeed was passing over Pharaoh. He was rejecting Pharaoh for salvation and he was preparing to bring justice on him. He allowed Pharaoh. He permitted Pharaoh. He set things in action so that Pharaoh would become mighty and powerful. The most powerful ruler on the earth at that time. This was for a purpose. God was not ignoring Pharaoh's sin. God was not ignoring Egypt's sin against the Jewish people who had put the Jews in slavery. No, God was about to bring about his very specific purpose in Pharaoh. God's in charge. God's in control. Sometimes today we, we look at these leaders and these wars and these terrorists and all this going on, all these babies who have been killed in the womb, and we think, how long, O oh Lord? Like the psalmist, you know, how long can this go on? How long can these things happen where these kids are killed? And yet, God is not asleep. He will bring justice. He's allowing that for his purposes for now, but he will bring justice. So to continue now in the quote from Exodus, he says, God says to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, I've raised you up. I've raised you up for this very purpose. And now he gives us the purpose. We don't even have to guess. He gives us the purpose. Again, two prongs here, two parts of this purpose. And you see the purpose in order. In order to do such and such. That is a clear purpose statement in the New Testament. In order to do, demonstrate my power in you. And in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Two purposes which go together. First of all, in order that power, God's power be demonstrated. That God's power will be shown to those humans on the earth. God brought the most powerful plagues on Egypt. Things that have never happened since then. Things that didn't happen before then. The ten plagues were brought upon Egypt for a reason. God split the Red Sea. God totally wiped out this massive army that Pharaoh had. Why? He says, to demonstrate my power in you. Pharaoh was raised up. He was given power and might. So that when God brought about this miraculous rescue... People would know. People would know who this God was. He would deliver Israel from out of Egypt. Who's ever heard of that in ancient times? A whole people, millions of people rescued out of a nation. Their army wiped out all these miraculous events. It's never happened. God tells Israel later when they're rebelling. Who's ever heard of such a thing happening? None of these other gods have ever done that for their people. And look what I did for you. That's God's mighty power being demonstrated and shown to the world and what God did with Pharaoh. Secondly, he says, in 
in order that God's name be proclaimed. And this word proclaimed is very rare in the Greek New Testament. It only comes up a few times. It means that something is being made known far and wide to proclaim, to spread the news about something everywhere. Jesus uses this in Luke 9.60 when he says, Go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. God wants his name to be proclaimed everywhere. His power, what he has done for his people, which reflects who he is, to be stated, to be repeated, to be spread throughout the whole earth. And it still is today, isn't it? Even as we read this passage. Even if someone didn't hear it back then, they're hearing it today, aren't they? Through the Bible, through God's word. God put his great glory and power and might And they're all related to his great name on display to the whole world when he did this awesome thing in rescuing Israel out of Egypt. This is all over scripture. The teaching that God raises up sinners in certain places of power and they are running headlong into their sin and they're not saying this isn't fair, God. And then he brings judgment on them. To say this is unfair of God to do is to say eternal punishment in hell is unfair of God to do. And we know that's not right. Is it unfair for God to punish sinners eternally for their sin? God's not letting anybody off the hook here. Paul's not letting anybody off the hook here. He's taken us to the viewpoint from God's viewpoint. God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. He has raised Pharaoh up for this time, for this reason. And that's all over scripture as we'll see. Right now, though, we need to ask, did God's name and power get spread over the earth due to what happened with Pharaoh? Did it actually happen? Well, we see this right after the events of Exodus. Of course, the first generation rebels against God in the wilderness, so we have to wait 40 years. But when they come into the land in the book of Joshua, they come to this city, the spies do. They come to this city called Jericho. And you remember, they meet a woman there, a prostitute, who's converted named Rahab. And here's what she says. She, she immediately tells them she loves their God. She doesn't say it, and that's how the New Testament would say it, but she says it in her own way in ancient times. And here's why. For we, she says, this is Joshua 2.10, for we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Indeed, we heard it and our hearts melted. And a courageous spirit no longer rose up in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She said the only person who could do this, the only God who could do this is the God of heaven and earth. That's it. No one else can split the Red Sea, bring millions of people out of the most powerful empire in the world. At that time, this must be Yahweh. Your God, who's the God of everything, heaven above and on earth beneath. That's everything in the ancient languages. Everything. Rahab knew it. And she said, it's not just me that's fearful. Now, she had the right kind of fear that led to her conversion. But she said, everyone, everyone in Canaan is fearful. Everyone is shaking in their boots. Joshua 9, the Gibeonites then come to Joshua and they deceive him to make a covenant. And they say, your servants have come from a very far country. Because of the fame of Yahweh your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt. We heard about what your God did in Egypt. 
We heard about that. We heard about all of it. And that's what drove them to come and try to cut a covenant with Israel. Pharaoh was allowed to continue in his sin. He was allowed to amass this great army and this great wealth so that ultimately God's purposes and election would stand. That's why Paul quotes this. God is doing something here. He's doing something right now. We just can't see the long-term view of it like he does. He knows what he's doing. You can imagine some of the Hebrews, and you, and you see this in Exodus, where they say, oh God, what are you doing? How long will we be slaves in Egypt? Sometimes we look at things today. How long, Lord? How long will this go on? And yet God is always at work. God raised up, remember he raised up Assyria? To judge the northern kingdom of Israel. He raised up Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar the Great. To judge the kingdom of Judah. God raised up Judas. Knowing what Judas would do. Knowing Judas's heart. Jesus knew what Judas would do. God raised him up. Now Judas and, and Assyria and Babylon weren't complaining about their free will. They were saying we're doing exactly what we want to do. And they were. But God is also sovereign over that. We saw Acts 2.23. Let's go to now Acts 4.27. And I want you to see this one because here's what it all comes down to right here in Acts 4.27. If you can believe this, then you can believe anything in Romans 9, anything in Exodus. Acts 4.27. See, this is one that we pass over as Christians. This is acceptable. But look at what he's saying here in Acts 4.27. So a sermon is being delivered here. This is Peter again preaching, similar to our scripture reading today, but it's a later sermon. And he says, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus. The Son of God had people gathered against him, whom you anointed. And who were these people? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They were in sin. They were gathering to kill the Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh. But look at verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So were they sinning or is God sovereign over it? Yes, both. They were sinning and as far as they were concerned, they were loving it. And God was sovereign over it and predestined all of it to occur. He raised up Pontius Pilate. He raised up Herod. He raised up the Gentile Roman soldiers. He raised up the Jews and those who mocked Christ. And it was all in the providence of God. He made sure it would happen. They were all responsible for their sin. They were all responsible for their sinful actions. They will pay the penalty for those. But these actions were not outside of the sovereignty of God. It's not as if God and Satan are two opposing gods who are fighting back and forth. That's kind of the modern idea of Christianity portrayed in movies and books, right? There, there's God fighting against Satan, and you just don't know who's going to win. Maybe someday God will win, because we know that, but they are equal in authority and power. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is a false view of God and a false view of Satan. God is sovereign. Satan is not. Man is not. God is sovereign. God purposed and he predestined all of this. Whether we're talking about Pharaoh or Judas or Pilate or Herod, he purposed and predestined all of it to come to pass so that his glory would be displayed. His great name would go out. 
The gospel has gone around the world. And it's still reaching people groups that have not yet heard the gospel. And this story about the crucifixion of Christ is being proclaimed. And God is being glorified through all of that. Here's what Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of America, said. He said, it's the will of God to manifest his sovereignty. And his sovereignty, like his other attributes, is manifested in the exercise of it. He glorifies his power in the exercise of his power. He glorifies his mercy in the exercise of his mercy. So he glorifies his sovereignty in the exercise of his sovereignty. We can't just go around saying God is sovereign and then get upset when he actually exercises his sovereignty. And then we began to realize everything that's happening is an exercise of God's sovereignty. So if we don't like God's sovereignty, we're literally going to be upset at God every moment of the day. And the very breath we breathe is God's sovereignty. So certainly salvation is God's sovereign mercy. But we're talking about hardening here. So Paul now sums up the reason he quoted the verse. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. This is the point. This is the answer to the objection that God must be unfair. Now we looked at the first part of verse 18 with the mercy back in 15 and 16. But let's focus on he hardens whom he desires. What does it mean that God hardens people? What does it mean to harden in the Bible, whether it's in the Hebrew or the Greek? It means to cause to be stubborn and obstinate, especially with regard to the truth. To be hardened, to, be, to have a callousness to the heart that it doesn't, want to accept the truth. It doesn't want to believe the truth. It is hardened. Now, due to inherited sin that we get from Adam, our, our first parents sinned. And due to that sin nature that we inherit from them, man is naturally hardened as he comes out of the womb. Everybody has a hard heart and God has to break that hard heart down. The Bible uses the illustration in Ezekiel of taking out the stony hard heart and putting in a heart of flesh so that they can believe. That's the only way it works. We have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So that's one way of talking about hardening of heart. That's the natural hardening that everybody has. There's something more going on here with Pharaoh and other places in Scripture where God hardens people's heart. 17 times Pharaoh's hard heart is mentioned in Exodus. From Exodus 4 to 14, that's that time period that's being described there in Egypt. 17 times. Pharaoh's hard heart is mentioned. And people say, well, that is because God hardened Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So God is responding in judgment. Well, the problem with that is twofold. First of all, of the 17 times, only four of those refer to Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. Only four. And one of those four, it says, he hardened his heart. As it was said, he would harden his heart. The idea is God had said that already. But you know what comes up first in Exodus? The very first mention of Pharaoh's heart being hardened is that God would do it. Two times before any of the plagues come. Let's look at that. Exodus 4.21. If we need to understand God's hardening, which we do, let's go back to Exodus. And this is before the plagues start. Before Pharaoh has resisted anything that God has sent. Exodus 4, 21, Yahweh said to Moses, when you go to return to Egypt. So he's not even back in Egypt yet. He's telling Moses what's going to happen. 
See to it that all the miraculous wonders which I have put in your hand, that you do them before Pharaoh. So you, Moses, you, you've got something you need to go do. Do what I told you. Make sure these miracles are brought about that I'm going to give you. But as for me, this is God speaking. As for me, I will harden his heart with strength so that he will not let the people go. God will, will strengthen his already natural stubbornness and sinfulness and injustice and hatred towards what is good and godly. God will strengthen that. God will harden him. Not because he rejects Israel later when Moses comes, but God says, this is my plan. This is the very purpose for which I raised him up. Let's now go to chapter 7 of Exodus, verse 3. God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart with stiffness, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Because Pharaoh, at some point, you would think he would just stop, that he would just give over. God hardens his heart. Now look at Exodus 9, 34. Here it's very interesting. We see both Pharaoh hardening his own heart and God hardening his heart. 9.34, but Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had ceased. So he sinned again and hardened his heart with firmness, he and his servants. So he said, you know, I'll let you go. Oh, never mind. It, the rain has stopped. Now the hail has stopped. I am going to harden my heart. And he sinned. That is a, clearly a sin. It's on his account. Verse 35, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened with strength. That's passive. Pharaoh was hardened. He hardened his own heart, and God hardened his heart. And he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as Yahweh had spoken by the hand of Moses. Yahweh had already said that was going to happen because he's the one doing the hardening. But Pharaoh's also hardening his own heart. But in this case, it's not a response. God's not waiting to see what Pharaoh does, and then he'll respond. God says, I've sovereignly decreed that this is the way it will happen. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, we shouldn't think from this that God produces sin in Pharaoh. Pharaoh already had sin in his own heart. We cannot say that God is the author of sin in Pharaoh. James 1 tells us that God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of evil. But it is not injustice with God to freely and sovereignly choose to withhold his grace so that the sinner continues to get hardened and get hardened over time. That's just judgment. Not a response to what Pharaoh might do, but judgment for Pharaoh being a sinner. Why do we have a problem with God actually bringing judgment in this life? We often want that. Please, Lord, judge the wicked. They're persecuting Christians. They're killing Christians. And then we get to a text like this and we think, oh, that's not fair. Don't we want God to be a righteous judge? Would you like it if the judge let off the person who wiped out your family? who did these awful things to young women? Would you like that if a serial killer got let off the hook? We expect a judge to be righteous. God has the right and freedom to decide who receives mercy and who receives justice. Genesis, let's go back to Genesis now since we're in Exodus. Genesis 50, 20. And look at this. This is a story of Joseph, which it has to happen this way so that Israel would come back to the land and that through the line of Israel, the Messiah would eventually come. Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20, he's talking to his brothers. 
Their father has died. Jacob has died. And they're concerned, the brothers are, that Joseph's going to take it out on, on what they did. They sold him into slavery. And he says, as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. They sinned against, they sinned against Joseph. They committed a sin and they would be responsible before God for it. But he says, God meant it for good. And here's that purpose statement, in order to. God meant it for this purpose, in order to do what has happened on this day to keep many people alive. So he's encouraging his brothers. Let's continue here in the Bible. Joshua 11.20. I'm going to have a little Bible study here on how God is sovereign over the sinful acts of mankind. Even though he's not the author of sin, he is still sovereign over everything. Joshua 11 verse 20. I think we, yeah, we just looked at this on Wednesday night in our Bible studies. And since it came up, I had to put it in this sermon. For it was of Yahweh to strengthen their hearts, the Canaanites. They wanted to come and wipe out Israel. And it says God strengthened their hearts. Literally in the Hebrew, God hardened their hearts to meet Israel in battle. In order that he might devote them to destruction. That they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as Yahweh had commanded Moses. God had commanded Moses to go into the land and wipe out these sinful tribes that were there, these Canaanites, because they were sacrificing to other gods. They were killing their children on the altar. They were committing all these sins that he tells Abraham, 400 years from now, I'm bringing your people back, your descendants, and they're going to bring about my wrath on the Amorites. Let's go forward to Proverbs 16.4. Proverbs 16.4. If you can't find it, that's fine. I'll read it to you. Proverbs 16.4. Yahweh has made everything for its own purpose. Sinful people, they can't be made by God, can they? Yeah, everything is made by God. Every person is made by God. And that's why we shouldn't try to take out our vengeance on people individually. Let the government which God has put in place handle that. Everybody's made in the image of God. But he has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. There are evil times. There are evil people. And God has made both for his glory. He's not the author of sin. He doesn't cause them to sin. But he is sovereign over everything. We already looked at Acts 2.23. and the scripture reading, we looked at Acts 4.27. Let's go now to John 12. John 12. 39. This is Jesus quoting from Isaiah. So Isaiah was told by God to go preach. And God said, Isaiah, no one's going to listen. You go preach what I tell you, but no one's going to listen because I've hardened them. And now Jesus brings this forward to his ministry and says it's the same in his day. John 12, 39. For this reason, they could not believe. The people who heard Jesus could not believe. They weren't able to. Why? Because of their own sin? Yes. Because of their own hard hearts? Yes. But also God is sovereign over all this. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and He hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and return and I heal them. God's bringing about judgment on them in this life. He's already starting the process by hardening their hearts. Well, we're going to see this in Romans 11 too. Romans 11 and verse 25. It just, it doesn't stop in the Bible. God is sovereign over all of these things. Romans eleven twenty five. What about Israel? Why do they resist the Messiah? Why do they resist Christ? Because they're sinners? Yes. The Bible affirms that. But look at eleven twenty five here. 
it says, Paul writing here, I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. He's telling them this so they won't be prideful. Because Gentiles can be prideful and we can think, well, he's abandoned the Jews. He's done with them. And he says, a partial hardening. It's partial because there's still some Jews being saved right now. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God's sovereign over it, and he has hardened them until his timing is complete. Did they harden themselves? Yes. Did he harden them? Yes. Second Thessalonians, the last one here. It's going to happen again in the end times when this man of lawlessness appears, also called the Antichrist. Second Thessalonians 2.8. You see, we can't sit here and say God's unfair in Romans 9 because there's all these verses where God is doing this and we know God is right. Now, we may not understand, and we don't. None of us do how these two things eventually meet. Spurgeon said, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, they look like parallel railroad tracks. And they just keep going parallel into the distance. But he said, I know somewhere they meet up and make sense in the mind of God, of course. We don't see that. We know the Bible says man is responsible for his sin. And we know that God is sovereign over everything that happens, including man's sin. How do those two things meet up? I agree with Spurgeon. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we have to take what is said as the true word of God and believe it. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, whose coming is in accord with the working of Satan. So this, this man of lawlessness is from Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. Okay? And with all the deception of unrighteousness for those who perish. So he comes, he has these, these miracles. They look like miracles. They're false. They look like miracles. And all this deception, it's unrighteous because they did not receive the love of the truth as to be saved. So people are going to follow this. They're going to believe it. They're going to sin, reject the true gospel, and they're going to follow this lawless one. And verse 11, and for this reason, God sends upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. He's enacting his judgment on them. They decided to follow this satanic figure, and God sends upon them a deluding influence in order that they all may be judged. See, that's the point, that they all may be judged because God's a righteous judge who did not believe. They did not believe the truth, but they took pleasure in unrighteousness. God's not unfair because he brings justice. That's what we all deserve. And he's not unfair because he gives mercy. Mercy is not the same as injustice. It's who God is. So as I said, God is not the author of sin, but he's sovereign over these things. I mentioned James 1. Let me read James 1.13 to you. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Here's how Pastor Scott Christensen, he's associate pastor over at Kerrville, our sending church there. He wrote a book called What About Evil? If you really want to explore this over hundreds of pages, pick up his book in the bookstore. What About Evil? He says on this, God never actively moves the will of the sinner. He never infuses evil thoughts into the mind of anyone. Evil can never proceed from the character of a perfectly good God. So we have to affirm both. Man is responsible for their sin. 
And God is sovereign over everything. And if it says he hardened Pharaoh's heart, then he hardened Pharaoh's heart in judgment, of course. You see, election is that God sovereignly acts to show his mercy for the elect. But we have to affirm the flip side of that. That's the the positive side of the coin. Underneath that is that God rejected the others. That's the reprobate. He didn't need to do anything. We'll look at this next week. He didn't need to do anything for them to be reprobate. They're already going to hell for their sin. We're all going to hell for our sin without God's mercy. He doesn't have to act in the hearts of anyone. There are cases where he hardens hearts so that his great name would be displayed. So real quick, how does this work? We're not really told in this case how it worked. In other cases in the Bible, the hardening happens because God withdraws his common grace. So in Romans 1, it says they chose to worship idols and so he gave them over. And they chose to live in sexual sin like homosexuality and he gave them over. So three times it's give them over to their own sins, their own desires. In Acts 14, Paul says, In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. So he just steps back and lets things happen in a person's life that makes them harder of heart. Other times, God allows Satan or evil spirits to incite evil. When David took the census, it says in, in, in 1 Kings and in Chronicles, two different accounts. One says Yahweh incited him, and the other says an evil spirit incited him. So God permitted an evil spirit, to incite David to take the census of Israel. Look at Job, the book of Job. Satan shows up. God permits Satan to test Job. And you can read the book of Job to see how that went. And we're not told specifically here how God did it with Pharaoh. We cannot say for sure these are the secret things which belong to God. We just have to look at what's revealed to us. But what we can say is that God in his sovereign freedom, he chose to do this to display his power, his name, his glory. And we have to affirm that. When people say this is not fair, or when people say that it's not fair that God chooses some and rejects others, they really don't understand who God is. And sometimes that's some of us. We just don't understand who God is. And we need to understand the Bible's teaching on God's perfect holiness and his perfect righteousness and all the attributes and perfections of God. Sinners get justice. Sinners get justice. And those who are saved by God's mercy, they get mercy. But no one gets injustice, as R.C. Sproul has said so many times in his teaching. God's grace and election is not justice, but mercy. It's grace. None of us are saved without God choosing some to be saved. That's the only way it works, the Bible says. And we're in no position to question God's righteousness. We're in no position to say God is unfair. We can't take scissors to our Bible and start cutting out Romans 9 and all those other passages. And you're going to end up with almost nothing left in your Bible. Because how many books did we already look at where this is brought up? Job wanted an answer for God. Job thought maybe God had been unfair to him. And he wanted an answer from God. And when he got the answer, which wasn't the answer he wanted, but was all about God's glory and might and power. Remember when God shows up to speak with Job? And Job says, here's his last words. I declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was great. God sent him out into the wilderness to eat grass like an ox and to live as a wild beast for seven years. And finally, he repented of his pride. And I believe got converted. But here's what he said. God does according to his will and the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of earth 
And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar, biggest pagan there was, gets converted and says that moment that he's converted, no one can ask God, what have you done? Who are you, God, to do this? These men in the Old Testament learned what we have seen here in Romans 9, 17 and 18. God is just. God is righteous. Let God be God and every man a liar is what Paul said back in Romans 2. We need to believe the word and we need to see how it humbles us and how it drives us to Christ. Shouldn't you be thankful? If you are one of the ones who's received mercy, shouldn't you be thankful today? Shouldn't you go home and just get on your knees and praise God for that? Because you could be in the process of being hardened, and yet you know that he saved you if you have faith. And those who are today who don't have faith, those who are today who are trusting in their parents and thinking, well, my parents are Christians, I'm a Christian. Or maybe you've been visiting, or maybe this is your first time here, and you think, well, I'm in church, I'm a Christian, I grew up a Christian. You could be hardened right now if you don't actually have faith in Christ. Have faith in Christ. Part of God's hardening today, I believe, is people being a cultural Christian, thinking they're saved, but they're actually not. Because it's only in Christ alone that you're saved. It's not your church attendance, although you're expected to be a church if you're a Christian. It's not your parents. It's not the things you did when you were a kid or a teenager or last year. It's right now. Do you have faith in Christ? That's the ones who've been shown mercy. They exercise that faith after God changed their heart. They exercise repentance. For believers, we need to love the word of God. We need to love the good, warm and fuzzy passages and sometimes the hard passages as well, don't we? All the time. All the time we need to love the Bible. Now, I'd be concerned if all you ever talk about is reprobation and you would not be around much longer if I did that for a year of sermons on reprobation. We need to have proper balance like the word does. But both work in our lives to edify us. So let's pray that God would do that now. Lord, thank you for this text. It's not one that man would have written. We know it comes from you. We know that Paul wrote this because it's true and it's what you wanted him to write in this letter. This doctrine, these doctrines of election and reprobation, they're, they're too mighty for us. We just read about them. We learn what we can. We believe it is true. But Lord, we know this is your perfect, pure word. Help us to accept it. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief and help us to love your word enough to take it in as true, to live it out, to tell others about what's coming for them if they don't believe in Christ. I pray that anyone who heard this message today would put their trust in Christ if they've not already, and that we would see sinners saved through the preaching of your word. We pray this for your name, for your great glory, for your mighty power. Amen.